Welcome to the sermon podcast of Damascus Road Church. For more information about Damascus Road Church, go to damascusroadonline.com. Acts chapter 17. Our text today is actually verse 16 through 34, but I'm going to read verse 16 through 21, and then I'll pray. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. And so he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and they brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears, and we wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who live there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for your Holy Spirit. And we thank you that today we have the miraculous opportunity to hear from your holy word, to be directed, guided, encouraged, convicted by your Holy Spirit. God, we believe that you're present here today. We believe that you have things to say to us, you have things that you want to do with us, God, and we're thankful for that. We just pray, God, that you prepare our hearts, give us ears to hear, give us eyes to see, God, give us a willingness to do whatever you call us to. And we thank you for all of it, in the good, wonderful, and gracious name of Jesus, amen. Amen. All right, go ahead and have a seat. So every week we, uh, we stand up here, Tony does, and he says, we center ourselves on three things here at Damascus Road. We're gospel-centered. We're community-based, and we're, all right, not bad. I would have liked a little more resounding, all right, every single week. Yeah, what's the third one? We're what? There you go. All right, yeah, I've been saying it to you every week to annoy you or help you remember. I'm not sure which one. Yeah, you still screwed up. Okay, so today we're going to really focus on this idea of being mission-focused in this text that we have here. This is one of the most famous text in the entire Bible, one of the most effective missionaries in the Bible, a guy by the name of the Apostle Paul. And he goes to the city of Athens, and he goes to really the epicenter of the city where the culture is made, where it's talked about, where it's argued over, and that area is known as Mars Hill. And he has a conversation that I think is going to be helpful to us today as we try to do really this singular thing, and that's to see our city uh, like missionaries, to see our city like missionaries. So let me explain that to you. Uh, God says that when he saves you, he sends you. He sends you to the neighborhood that you're in, to the family that you're a part of, to the work environment that you're in. He sends you with the gospel. You are a missionary. You are somebody who God says, I've got plans and purposes for your life. I want you to tell people about my son, Jesus. That's what being a missionary is. And if you're in here today and you're a Christian, it's not a question of whether or not you're a missionary. It's a question of whether or not you're an effective missionary. And so Paul is like the Michael Jordan of missions, right? And so this is like Michael Jordan saying, hey, bro, I'll, I'll, I'll come to my place. We'll play ball for an hour, and I'll, I'll tell you how I do what I do. So this is a really important thing. Now, when we talk about mission, mission is the action that a missionary does. And here's, here's essentially what it is. It's, it's this truth that God says that we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. Amen? Yeah? That we are to love them, even if they don't look like us, think like us, act like us, believe like us. We're to love them because our God loves them. Secondly, it's this truth that God 
died to save them. That God died, sent his only begotten son, John 3.16, to die for you and for me and for them and for us. And mission is the activity in action and in word of showing people there is a God, he loves you, he sent his son to die for you, he wants a relationship with you. And when we talk about being mission focused, what we're saying is, y'all are missionaries and we want you to be focused on the action of mission. Telling people Jesus loves them. Telling people God has a plan for them. Telling people that God is near. That he's available. That he has plans and purposes for them. And so today, what I want to do is I want to just talk our way down through Acts chapter 17. And I want to talk about the idea of how do we think about our city in such a way that will allow us to join the work that God's doing in Madison. Listen, I believe this. I believe that God is at work in Madison. Okay? God's not waiting on you and I. God is already here. God is already at work. God is already doing. It's just a question of whether or not we're going to join him. And so what I want to do today is I want to give you two dangers when it comes to mission, two tendencies that I think that we have that will keep us from being good missionaries. And then I want to talk about three things that Paul does that help him be effective in this city of Athens. And hopefully it'll be helpful to you. So if you're jotting notes down, let's talk about the dangers first. We'll talk quickly We'll get it out of the way, all right? The first danger when it comes to mission, this idea of how do I be an effective missionary in this great city of Madison. The first danger is a tendency for us to view Madison as us, me and you, right? And them. People who are here and believe like we believe and and them. And here's why I say that. Uh, I said to you last week that the Apostle Paul began to introduce himself differently throughout his ministry. In the book of 1 Corinthians, he introduces himself as the least of the apostles, which is like saying, I am the ninth batter on the all-star team, right? He still gets a huge contract. He's still a celebrity. He's still a big deal, right? And so he's going around and saying, look, I'm not the best apostle, but I am one. At the end of his ministry, in the book of 1 Timothy, do you know how he introduces himself? The chief of sinners. I want you to think about when you process the city of Madison, if you were to think about yourself as the least of the apostles, would it affect how you viewed the rest of Madison? Yeah, of course it would. You'd kind of, you would kind of have this sense of, and I got, I got some important things that I need to say, and God's done some important things in me, and I, I need to let you know. But if you viewed the city of Madison as though you were the chief of sinners, would it affect the way that you acted as a missionary? There wouldn't be an us and them, it would be us, us, and Jesus, Right? And this tendency that we have whenever God saves us to become a follower of Jesus, we start coming to church on Sunday, we get this new book called the Bible, we start praying, we start thinking about things differently, we start hanging out with different people, we start dressing differently, we start going to different movies, listening to different music, talking different ways, and then we find other people who do the same thing, and we call that a church. And it becomes us and them very quickly, the problem with it is that them has a hard time becoming us. And missions is the idea that there's God and there's us. God has plans and purposes for all of us. And the church has a knack for creating a dividing line that isn't there in the Bible. It's a danger and it's a tendency that we need to be cognizant of and aware of so that we don't do it. The second thing, I want to reference for you a a book that I read uh, a couple years ago on porches and decks. Okay, and now before you say, Tim, you're the biggest nerd I've ever met, okay, let me explain it. I was reading, it was actually a sociologist 
who wrote this book. And he said that in the 50s and 60s, whenever somebody built a house, they would always put a porch on the front. And the reason that they would put a porch on the front, or a stoop, if you are from the Northeast, uh, is because on holidays in particular, people would walk through the neighborhood and everyone would sit on their porch and you'd have a beverage or a hot dog or something and people would just walk up on the porch and you'd hang out and, hey, how are you? How's the kids? How's the job? So on and so forth. He said in the last 20 years or so, people stopped building porches and they started building decks. Yeah. And they stopped building detached garages and we started building attached garages. And what this sociologist was talking about is that it used to be that you had to work pretty hard to be isolated, to be away from community. But now we pull into our attached garage with our garage door open. We don't have to even get out of the car. We go into our house without our neighbors seeing us. And on holidays, we go into our back deck with a fence around us and invite only who we want to hang out with. And it shows up in other areas, too. On Facebook, if somebody says, can I be your friend? I go, okay, confirm. And then if you put up a post that I don't like, I say, you know what? I deconfirm. How about that? <laughs> I deconfirm. And, and you don't even know that I deconfirmed unless you actually come to my page. Like, if I'm in a store someplace, oh, what do I have in my ears? I have headphones on. And if I have to wait in line for more than 30 seconds, I say, what am I going to do with all this free time? I know I'll get out my phone and look like I'm busy. What happens? We insulate ourselves. We're so planned. We're so canned. We're so isolated that what ends up happening is that we don't have to spend any time with anyone. And instead of it being more difficult to be isolated than it is to be in community, it's actually more difficult to be in community than it is to be isolated. Here's the problem with that, with mission. In order for us to be a good missionary, you have to have relationships. And relationships aren't easy, and they aren't clean, and they aren't controlled, and they aren't canned, and they aren't always planned, but that's how God determined and predetermined it to be. And so for Christians to look at their life, say, around the beginning of a new year, and say, is there even space in my life for mission to occur? Or do I have every moment busy with something? Do I control every relationship that I have? Do I have every space in its proper space? Is there any room for the Spirit to say, meet such and such, I would like you to tell him that I love him. Or is my nose always in my phone? Are my headphones always on my ears? Am I always pulling into my garage and hanging out on my back deck? Where is the mission porch in our life? Where's the mission porch in our life? So these two dangers, the us and them, and the back porch. And us trying to think through, and I'm going to challenge you today. It's the, new, it's the beginning of the year, and, and you guys are up for it. You're awesome. You're, you're tough. I know you can take it. I, I'm, I'm going to challenge you today about looking at your life and thinking about whether or not I am somebody that's on mission, I'm mission-focused, whether or not I'm focused on things that God says aren't going to last past the end of my life. Okay? So here's what I want you to see. Paul comes to this city, Athens, Athens, Greece, it still exists today. It's a very significant city. It's a very influential city. And it says that he is waiting for some of his buddies in verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, and what he does is he begins to go and walk through the city. He does the first point. He, he, sees, he sees the city. And the scripture lets us know the things that he sees And I think that it's important for us to note them. So if you're taking notes down, the first thing that he sees when he goes through the city 
in chapter 17 and verse 16, if you're following along with me. Now, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. First thing that he sees is that the city is full of idols. Now, if you look historically back at the city of Athens, there was about 10,000 people in the city at this point. Do you know how many gods there were? About 30,000. And so in a very literal, objective sense, he is seeing idols everywhere, but it's also kind of a subjective, metaphysical thing as well, that he's seeing worship everywhere. A couple things that I want you to understand about this. Just because somebody is non-religious doesn't mean they're non-worshipping. When somebody says, I don't go to church anymore, that doesn't mean that they don't worship something. In fact, God said that he created all of us worshiping. You're a worshiper of something. Whether you're religious or liturgical or not, equally, everybody in this room, A, worships something, and B, puts their faith in something. The most angry, antagonistic atheist puts his faith in something. Puts her faith in something. God built us worshiping and he built us with faith that we're trying to put somewhere. Paul walks through the city of Athens and it says that he sees idols everywhere. Do you know that you can walk through the city of Madison and see idols everywhere? Everywhere. Yeah. You go downtown and you can see idols. They're walking around with signs and they look angry, right? You can see environmental, you can see political, you can see uh, skinny jeans and hipness, right? You can see foodie, you can see lots and lots and lots of different idols. The question is whether or not, listen to me, you see it, or whether or not it happens to you. If you're a good missionary, Paul walks through the city, and he's evaluating what's being worshipped as he goes through the city. He sees the city the way that God does. He sees the city the way that God does. And when God looks at an area, he looks at whether or not he's being worshipped or something else is being worshipped. And so just ask yourself, what are the things that when I look through Madison, go through Madison, live life in Madison, I see people worshipping. I see people loving. I see people bowing down to, as it were. The second thing that's interesting is Paul runs into two groups of people. The first is the Epicureans gangsters, right? And the second is Stoics. Let me tell you about these two groups of people. Epicureans believe that life was random, that there was nothing in the afterlife, and so that you should take this life and you should do what with it? You should let it rip, baby. You should have as much fun as you can, grab life with both hands, get as much pleasure as you can out of it. Stoics believe that fate and that your place in history was predetermined. And so you had a role to play, and it was, here's the key word, it was your duty to do that as well as possible. And so you have the high achievers, the dutiful, the do the right thing at the right time for the maybe right reason, and then you've got people who are like, hey man, why you got to be so uptight? I'm just here to have a good time. Does that, those two groups of people still show up in cities? Yeah. Yeah, let me say it to you this way. Why'd you move to Madison? Oh man, because I grew up in this town in the UP, and I heard that there was some crazy stuff going on here, so I came down to get whatever degree I'm going to get, I don't really know, and I'm just having a great time, and then after I graduate, if I graduate, I'm going to move to the Near East Side and hang out with a bunch of hippies and buy expensive food at the co-op, even though I don't know what it means. (laughs) You've heard this story? Yeah, yeah. 
And then you've got other people, hey man, why'd you move to Madison? Well, I moved to Madison because it's got a great whatever program. Right? And I took this test and that test and my uh, SATs and I, I did well in school and Madison's got a good this and that and I'm hoping that whenever I get, graduate, I can move to the west side, right? <laughs> and buy a nice house. And uh, you've heard this story. Most of the time when people move to a city, and it could be this city, that city, whatever, people either move because they're, they're there to hang out and chill and have a great time and have a great experience, or they're there for duty. And Paul says, I, I, I'm walking through the city, and I'm seeing these idols, and I'm seeing worship happening, and I'm seeing the Epicureans, and I'm seeing the Stoics. And what you need to understand is that when you're looking at the city and evaluating who people are, you're evaluating what they worship. What, what is an Epicurean worship? The weekend, right? Like Tuesday. A good time, a good experience, something, some kind of transcendent, some kind of connection, whatever, however you want to say it. What, what, is, what is the Stoic worship? The Stoic worships ambition and, and status and success. And Do you see... Do you see the city the way that God does? Do you see this happening in Madison? Or are we just a part of it? Or are we just a part of it? And if we're going to be effective missionaries, we have to see the city the way that God sees the city. Lastly, in verse 21, listen to what it says about the city at Athens. This is interesting. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something, what? Something new. Do you know that we're just as enamored with something new as the Athenians were? You know how I know that? Well, because I have an iPad 2, and soon the iPad 3 is coming out. For Christmas, I got new jeans and new headphones, right? I heard there's a new restaurant. I hear there's a politician who's having a new tenure coming up, and he's got new ideas and new policies that are going to make all things new. Do you know there's actually a phrase for that? You know what it is? Progressives. What's a progressive? It's somebody who believes that we are evolving into something better than what was. And if Madison is not enamored with what is new, I don't know what is. We actually call Madison a progressive utopia. And so we take things and we're doing things new and we take old things and we make them better than they they were. We're we're doing it better than other places. And if you want to live in some place awesome and progressive, whether you want to chill or whether you want to achieve, come to Madison. If we're going to be a good missionary in Madison, you have to see Madison how God sees it. You have to evaluate it through worship. You have to evaluate it through pursuits. You have to evaluate it through values. And you have to, you have to ask yourself these questions. Uh, what makes Madison what it is? Not just go about life and let culture happen to you. But think about it and pray over it and, and, and see it clearly. The second thing that Paul does is that he feels the city. He feels the city. Look at verse 16. Now while Paul was waiting for them in Athens... His spirit, what's the next word? It was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Some of your Bible says distressed. Actually, in 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 8, it's the same word, and it means to be tormented. Paul's walking through the city, Athens or Madison, 
And he's distressed at the idols that he sees, at the pursuits that he sees, at the values that he sees. He's, he is provoked. He is he's tormented. Let me give you some examples of, of this. Um, since I've been here, we have buried four people whose recovery uh, took a, a bad turn. Four. And all of them, uh, their lives were ended by the same drug, heroin. And when I read about heroin, I, I read that we are in between Chicago and Minneapolis and the heroin sales go straight through our city and it's at, this is the phrase that I hear over and over and over again, epidemic level. People are dying from heroin and drug use and addiction again and again and again and again. We actually just buried a young man whose recovery uh, took a, 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 a turn. And uh, I went to the hospital, and, and I'm the kind of guy, I'm the stoic, right? I, I'm doing my duty, and then I go home, and just this wave of grief comes over me. This guy had a four-year-old boy. I've got seven, six, and two, and I'm looking at them, and I'm just incredibly, incredibly sad. And then I'm incredibly, incredibly angry because I'm sick of this story. Because I'm sick of hearing people who love God, who God has saved, who say, I want to serve life, but the addiction monster keeps jumping on their back and I'm, I'm tired of seeing this happen. And, I, and it infuriates me that people monetize addiction. And it infuriates me to see brokenness happen again and again and again. A couple weeks ago, we were in a membership class and one of the ladies in our community who uh, has a deep passion for addressing sex trafficking just kind of in passing said, yeah, you know, the number one state in the United States for underage sex trafficking is Wisconsin. And I said, what? And she said, yeah, it's the number one. We're the number one state in the entire United States for underage sex trafficking. And do you know who popped into my head? Miami. And I felt first rage and then I felt incredible sadness what if what if someone took Emma from me or somebody took me from Em and she was forced to do that and the life that she would have and the experiences that she would have and the wounds that she would have and her perspective of God tormenting tormenting do you know that in the United States, one of the worst states in the entire United States for racial equality is this progressive utopia that we live in? And that Wisconsin being one of the worst states, one of the worst counties in one of the worst states is Dane County. You see, in this progressive utopia that we live in, we're racist. And that should grieve you. Because we believe that God created all people in his image entirely equal. No matter what they look like, no matter what they think, no matter where they come from, no matter anything, we believe that God created all people equal. And it should grieve you when people do not believe that. And it should tick you off. It should tick you off. Do you know that right now, most of the people, actually just under most of the people who stand in some kind of church or some kind of justice of the peace or in Las Vegas and say, I do, I do, that just under 50% of those people will at a certain point say, I don't. 
And when I think about that, I agree with God in the book of Malachi when God says, I hate divorce. A a, a comedian by the name of Louis C.K. says that divorce is always good news because good marriages don't end in divorce. And ha ha ha, right? Nobody has a good divorce experience. And my weeks are many times spent with people who once said, I want to spend the rest of my life with you and now say, I don't want to spend the next five minutes with you. And that should make you sad. It should make you sad and grieve. It should make you angry. It should make you angry that as a, as a country and as a people and as a, as a nation and in our world, we still have a difficult time with selfless, unconditional, covenantal love. No matter how progressive we've gotten. You see, when you look at Madison, listen, there are lots of things to love. It's a beautiful city. It's a beautiful city with great people, with great food, with great style, with great, terrible weather, but the rest... <laughs> terrible, terrible weather. Yeah. Football's okay. I mean, not as good as other states, but we won't, we won't talk about that. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Go Buckeyes. Amen. Amen. Yeah. Listen, you, you can't, listen to me, this is important. You, you cannot feel the city if you don't see the city, and you won't see the city from your back porch or your back deck, right? And so what we're talking about here is is rhythms and values and whether or not I value the call in my life to be a missionary more than I value comfort and control and expectancy. Paul walks through the city and listen, as he's walking, he's seeing beauty and he's seeing culture and he's He's, he's being inundated with all of the wonderful things that Athens is, but he's also seeing worship, and he's, he's seeing pursuits, and he's seeing values, and the scripture says that he's being tormented by it. And what I want you to notice, guys, is, is that when you look at Paul, one of the most effective missionaries in the entire Bible, he loved, he loved the city, and he was broken whenever the cities that he went into were not worshiping a God who was good and trustworthy and faithful. And he would walk through the city and just feel inundated by that. And here's what I want you to understand. We, we should be too. We should be too. You should enjoy and appreciate what Madison is. But you should also see clearly what Madison is and it should, it should grieve you and it should infuriate you. And here's why. Because the next thing that Paul did was he opened his mouth. Paul was provoked to the point that he proclaimed. How many of you guys have ever watched 2020? Not very many people anymore, right? <laughs> I used to. I didn't even know it was still on. They do this thing now where they'll create scenarios where people do things that they shouldn't be doing in public places and they'll watch how people react. It's actually a pretty gross and weird thing, but it's really crazy to watch. And so the other day... Um, they have this guy and he's being rough with a girlfriend and people are walking by and everyone sees it, right? And nobody is like, nobody thinks it's a good thing. People are sad or angry or whatever it is, but some people look and give a dirty look and they keep walking. But some people, what do they do? They do something. They speak. Do you know that for some of us, uh, our handling of the gospel is like that person 
who sees it happening and puts our headphones back in. My wife uh, has been good at discipling me in this regard. Anytime my wife sees, someone's on the, sees someone on the side of the street, like uh, their car broke down or whatever, we should stop. <laughs> Don't ever do that without me, all right? Any, anytime my wife sees a need, my wife's very, we should do that. We should, we should say, somebody needs to do something. Someone needs to say something. Do you know that that's the emotion that the gospel should create in us? That's why it's important for us to see the city, not have the life so planned and so canned and so insular. See it so you can feel it so that you will be provoked to do something. Here's the problem, though. Most of us don't see it because our lives are so planned out with the phone and the headphones and the schedule and the uh, garage door and the back deck that we don't see it. We don't see it how God sees it, which means that whenever people read us statistics, we go, that's terrible. Oh, well. Paul goes through Athens and he's tormented to the place that he has to say something. And I want you to understand something, guys. There is no scenario in which you and I can be a faithful Christian and avoid speaking. It is fundamental to the Christian faith to receive the grace of God, to see the world the way that God sees it, to feel about the world the way that God feels about it, and to be compelled, provoked, tormented, distressed, and opening our mouth. Now, whenever you look at what Paul said in verse 22 through 34, for sake of time, there's four things that I want you to note. The first is that Paul speaks humbly. Paul speaks humbly. In verse 22, are you all still with me? Okay. So Paul is standing in the midst of the Areopagus, and he says, Men of Athens, I perceive in every way that you are very religious, for I have passed along and observed the objects of your worship, and I found an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Now first of all, the genius of Paul to be able to see the city and then use the city for the gospel. But I want you to notice the tone of this. The tone of this is complimentary, isn't it? It's not combative. It's, it's not condescending. It's not, here's the deal, guys. I'm kind of a big deal. I'm like middle reliever for the apostles. No, it, it's humble. I see, I see that you're religious. I see that you're worshiping. He affirms that they're worshiping. A lot of times we think that the gospel is a truck that needs to T-bone somebody's life. What Paul does is he takes that worship and he says, how about if I just twi- turn it just a little bit so you can think about it a little bit differently. In politics, there's this, there's this idea, it's called a wedge. It's to just get enough space in there for a new idea to come in. That's oftentimes how the gospel needs to be considered and talked about. Just turns it just enough. Here's the other reason that Paul says this to them. In 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 4, the Bible says that those who have not received the gospel yet are blinded by the God of this world. They're blinded by the God of this world. Whenever you are trying to help somebody who's blind go someplace, you don't come up beside them and say, why are you blind? It's right over there. But that's a lot of times how we talk about our city and talk to our city. Why are you doing that? That doesn't make any sense. No, 
Paul comes alongside blind men. He says, I, I, see that, I see that you're very religious and I see that you're worshiping. I also see that there's this thing that you don't quite understand. And, and, and let me say it to you this different way. Have you ever talked to somebody who their life is such that they have tried everything and now they're just trying to cover their bases? A guy by the name of Frank stood here and gave his testimony on Christmas Eve, and here's, here was his testimony. Uh, God just kept giving me the things that I asked for. Like, I'm, I'm not the guy who hit the bottom and bounced. I'm the guy who was at the top and just was not fulfilled. Do you know what's going on in Athens? They've got so many gods, and yet they're still afraid. What if we missed the actual one? And so they create a statue to cover their base. And Paul doesn't look at that and go, that's so dumb. He looks at that and sees the angst in it. What, 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 if, what if we're wrong? What if we didn't get it right? What if the thing that we invested in and cared for and are pursuing, what, what if it's not? And so Paul comes alongside, he puts his arm around, and he says, let's talk about this unknown God. There's, there's humility, there's compassion, there's kindness in it. And it, it ought to be the tone uh, of our language and the, the bent of our heart when we think about our city that you feel compassion for someone who's lost their way because they're blind. Not anger, not annoyance, not condescension. Compassion. And so Paul starts with this compassionate tone and says, let's talk about this unknown God and let me turn the angle of the lens enough to see if God might do something. And he gives them three ideas. The first is that he speaks of a maker who desires to be sought. Look at verse 20, uh, 24 with me. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundary of their dwelling. Why did he do that? That they should seek God in the hope that they might, look at the words, feel their way. What do you think of when you think of somebody feeling their way? Yeah. And find him. I want you to think about the significance of what God says. Paul is talking to Greeks who are on the downside of their empire. Alexander the Great came along and the empire was going well and now it's not going well. And he says, here's the deal, guys. God establishes powers and time periods. God is in charge of who's in charge. And God is in charge of who's in charge for as long as he wants them to be in charge. Why? So that people might seek him and feel for him and find him. Do you know, guys, that God says that he ordains the things that happen around you so that you might begin to feel for him? If I were to say it another way, there is never a point in your life where God is not at work to draw you into relationship with him. You say, look, man, you don't know what happened to me. I don't. But I know that God... Wants a relationship with you. You don't know how many times. You don't know what went good. You don't know what went bad. You don't know for how long. No, but I know that God knows. And Paul says to these group of people who have this angsty religion, God's at work. Always has been. 
God uses all things to bring you to a place where you will begin to feel for him and maybe perhaps find him. Some of you right now, God is using things in your life to bring you to a place where you'll begin to feel for him. And that's why number two is important. Verse 27, that they should seek God and hope that they might find their way toward him, feel their way toward him and find him, yet he is actually not far from each of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, for even some of your own poets have said, for we indeed are his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art or imagination of man. Here's what Paul says. He says, God is this unknown God. God is at work. And if you'll start to feel for him, you'll figure out that God is where? Near. Why is this important for the Athenians? Where did people who had a Greek mythology believe that God's hung out? Yeah, Mount Olympus, way up there, out there somewhere. And they did things to us, but they didn't really think about us. They didn't really care about us. They didn't really have a lot going on that pertained to us. Here's what Paul says. That unknown God, he ordains times and seasons and power so that you might begin to feel for him. And as you begin to feel for him, you'll find out that he's near. I've heard this story so many times. I've heard this story so many times that things happen to us And we begin to get to the place where we are about to go down to our knees. We begin to feel for the possibility that there is a God out there somewhere. That he maybe cares about me. That he maybe is trustworthy. That he maybe is faithful. And I begin to feel around only to find out that he's always been right here. Paul says, here's the thing, guys. You got all these idols, you got all these statues, you got all these temples, you got all this angst, you got all this duty, you got all this religion. To try to work your way up there, God is right here. He's always been right here. He is at work. He wants a relationship with you. He loves you. He's right here. For those of you today who life is happening to you, life's happening to you, To begin to feel only to find out that God is right here. In this room, right now. Has been at work in your life all along. Drawing, seeking, hoping. That you'll begin to feel for him. That you'll be able to find him. Paul begins to preach the gospel to these men. And then lastly, he speaks of accountability. Look at verse 30. Now the times of... In the times of ignorance, God, he overlooked them. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of these things he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Here's what, here's what God says. And here's what Paul says. He says, uh, I see what you're doing religiously. I want you to know that God has always been at work. I want you to know that God is near drawing, seeking, loving. And I want you to know that one day you're going to stand before him. I want you to know that the things in the past, those times of ignorance, those, those things don't matter. So if you're sitting in here today and you say, look man, this is my first time in church, maybe my second time or third time, I got lots of stuff going on. Paul's, Paul beats you to the punch. In those times of ignorance, God overlooks them. But today, 
today, right here, right now, knowing that God has a plan for your life, God has always been at work, knowing that God is near, God is present, God is here, and that God is going to say, I sent my son to die for you, and one day you're going to stand before him. And we're accountable. And he gives us the opportunity, knowing that he's been at work, knowing that he's near, to do what the Bible calls repent. Here's what it means. To turn around. You re- do realize, guys, that some of us, we're living our lives and we're, we're, we're going about our pursuits and our values, chasing our idols. And God is near. <laughs> he's present. And here's what the Bible says. You need to repent. You need to repent. You need to turn. You need to decide. You need to commit. You need to be saved. Today. Right now. Right here. I'm I'm turning. I'm done. I want to be saved. That's the message of the gospel, guys. It's the message that God gives to those of us that he has already saved. To see things clearly. To feel as he feels. And to have the courage to open our mouths. And say turn around. He's right there. (laughs) Turn around. He's always been at work. Turn around and look him squarely in the face. And understand that he loves you. He wants a relationship with you. He wants to save you today. 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 In this new year. Today. God wants to save you. Now, For those of us who are seeking to be effective missionaries. I want to. And in this way, Paul lays out this gospel account, the grace of God seeking to save, seeking to be better than our idols, right? And he gets three responses. One is that people go, come on, man, you're crazy. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. It's narrow-minded, it's judgmental, it's hypocritical. Have you heard this before? Yeah. People do that to Paul. Other people say, all right, I'll keep listening, just not anymore. We'll come back to it. That's second. Third is that people believe and people get saved like I hope somebody does today. Somebody's do today. Here's what I want you to notice. If you want to be a good missionary, you have to understand that the stewardship is to speak, not to respond. Lots of times the reason that we don't speak boldly is because we're afraid that we'll do it wrong and it won't work. Can you put a seed in the ground wrong? Can't do it. You just got to bend down and put it in there. And you can throw it. You can kick it. You can slap it. Right? Just get the seed in the ground. What does a farmer do? He puts seed in the ground, however he gets it there. And he goes home and he says, God, let it rain. God, let it sun. God, let it do whatever it's got to do. Just make it grow. That's what a missionary is. A missionary isn't a factory worker. It's a farmer. I put lots of seed in the ground. I open my mouth lots and lots of times because I feel the city, because I see the city from my front porch. And because I want people to turn and be saved. I want people to know the God who saved me. I want people to receive the grace of God. I want people to not just feel for God, but be able to wrap their arms around God. I want people to be who God created them to be. And so I speak and I put seed in the ground and I leave the response up to God. Listen, if people mock Paul, they're going to mock you. If people are like, I'm not convinced, Paul, they're not going to be convinced by you. That's not your job. 
It's not your job. Don't be insecure about it. Don't feel like you're going to mess it up. The only way you can mess it up is to not see it, to not feel it, and not speak it. It's the only way you can mess it up. It's put as much seed in the ground as you can. It's 2015. Can you believe it's 2015? It's unbelievable. Something that I'd like you to do. I'd like you to go home, and this week, I'd like you to pray around these three ideas. Seeing the city, feeling the city, speaking the city. And I'd like you to ask God to give you three names of people that you know. I want you to just begin to pray for them. God, would you help me to see them the way you do, to feel about them the way you do, and give me the courage to speak if you give me the opportunity. I'd like you to pray over those names every day this entire year. Three names. Maybe they're in your neighborhood, maybe they're at work, maybe they're in your family, maybe it's your spouse. Just begin to pray and put prayer seed in the ground and be committed to put speaking seed in the ground if God gives you the opportunity. Guys, when we talk about being mission-focused, it's not an idea out there somewhere. The plan for mission is you and me. Seeing Madison for what it is, feeling Madison for what it is, and having the courage and love for the city to speak to it so that it can turn around and see the grace of God. Amen? All right.